So our Bible reading this morning is from John 6, verse 22 to 35. You'll find it printed in your bulletins or in your Bible. Or if you have a cell phone app, you'll find it there. John 6, verse 22 to 35. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum, seeking Jesus. And when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? And Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your full of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perished, but for the food that endures to eternal life which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him who he has sent. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do? that we may see and believe you. What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it is not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. This is God's word. Thank you, Magda, for prayer and uh, leading us in scripture reading as well. We are, again, working our way through a series in the gospel according to John on what we're calling encounters with Jesus. So these are our various encounters that Jesus has with different people as recorded in the gospel of John, and we're seeing what we learn about Jesus from these encounters and what we can learn also about ourselves and about human beings and human nature out of these encounters as well. And this time, what's unique about the encounter is we're, we're looking at how Jesus interacts not with an individual specifically, but with a crowd of people. And so the context is this. So Jesus, uh, if I had a PowerPoint, I could put up a, like a slide for you here. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to mime a slide, okay? So here's the Sea of Galilee, 
all right? Here's the Sea of Galilee. Here's the city of Capernaum. Jesus was there on the west coast of the city of Capernaum. He and his disciples to go, decide to go to the other side. They, maybe they went around. Maybe they took a boat across. But they went to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And Jesus uh, began teaching there and doing miracles there and gathered a crowd as a result of that. And he taught uh, this large crowd of people for a very uh, long time over the course of a day. You guys get, you know, like a, a 30 to 40 minute sermon maybe once a week. These people, they sat down for hours on end uh, on a day uh, of the week. Um, so you obviously have it pretty easy. Um, and they loved it. They lapped it up. And then at the end of that sermon, the people were hungry. And so Jesus fed them miraculously. He had two loaves. He found two loaves of bread. and he, or Sorry, five loaves of bread and two fish. And he multiplied uh, that supply to feed upwards of 10,000 people in total. So it was quite a dramatic and remarkable uh, miracle. So then after that, the disciples go back down to the water and they take a boat and they leave and they go back to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. But Jesus remained there, went up on a mountain to pray, and all the people went home or went to sleep or whatever they did. And while they were asleep, Jesus decided to catch up with his disciples. So he does what the Son of God does, and that is he, uh, he walks on water. He just goes walking right across the lake, meets his disciples, finishes the journey with them. We pick up the story the next morning, okay? So we're, this is the next morning, and we're back, not at Capernaum, but we're back on the east side of the Sea of Galilee with the crowds. And the crowds come down to the water. They thought that the disciples only had left, and they were looking for Jesus. Why were they looking for Jesus? Well, because it's breakfast time, right? So they're hungry. He fed them the night before, and uh, they figure he could feed them once again. So they come looking for him at breakfast. They look around, and he's not there. And they go, hey, where, where did he go? They determine that he must have somehow gone to the other side with his disciples. So they get in boats, and they take off to go to the other side. And they find Jesus there on the other side. And we're going to unpack the encounter that Jesus has with this crowd when they come to him on the other side of the lake, the day after they have been fed miraculously with these five loaves and two fish. And in this encounter, we're going to see, and you'll see it in the outline on the back of the bulletin if you care, we're going to see that Jesus in this encounter demonstrates a tremendous concern. He offers a serious critique, and then he lays before these people a command. So there is concern, critique, Command. That's what we're going to look at in this exchange together. So here we go. The people come across. They show up uh, and they meet Jesus on the shore, perhaps uh, uh, on the other side of the lake. And they say to Jesus, hey, when did you get here? And Jesus responds in verse 26, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. In other words, Jesus does not answer their question. He doesn't enter into uh, kind of some small talk. So, when did you get here? You come here often? Oh, yeah. You know, he doesn't go, go up for any of that. Jesus right away discerns the motives of their hearts. 
He knows what they're thinking. And this is a theme that we have seen in these encounters. I hope you've been picking this up. It's interesting that at the end of uh, John chapter 1, when he has his first encounter with Nathanael, it's already revealed that Jesus knows what's going on in people's hearts. And then we see the same thing happen in John chapter 2 uh, after the, uh, the, the wedding. And in John 3 with Nicodemus and John 4 with the Samaritan woman, it goes on and on. Jesus always knows what's going on inside people's hearts. He knows the real motivations of the questions they're asking. And this time, it is a huge problem. He is very concerned about the motives of the hearts of this crowd. Jesus basically tells them, you have come all this way across the lake to find me not because of who I am, but because of what I did for you. I filled your bellies. I gave you supper last night, and you're looking for breakfast this morning. And this, he says, is the wrong reason to be looking for me. When he says, um, in verse 26, when he says, um, you ate your fill of the loaves, a legitimate translation of the actual words there is, you pigged out. So last night, you pigged out, you ate till you were super full, and now you're back looking for more. And so Jesus is saying, in in your eyes, I am nothing more to you than a food dispenser. I'm like a vending machine. I'm here to meet your physical needs, your material needs, your temporal needs, and that's all that you seem to care about. Now, what we're going to do is we're going to go deeper into this specific problem, this specific issue that Jesus has with, the, with this crowd and, and, their concern, and his concern about their specific issue, which is meeting their physical needs. But for the moment, what I want to emphasize for you, and you need to realize, is that Jesus is always, constantly, it seems, throughout the Gospels, almost scared, if I can use that term, that people will seek him out and follow him for the wrong reasons. All over the Gospels, you see this. He, he, talks, he, he, he shares a parable. And he says, two people built houses. One built his house on the rock, one built his house on the sand. Everything looked fine until the storm came. And it was revealed that the house on sand had no real foundation, and it fell flat. He tells a story of a a farmer who goes out to sow seed, and he sows seed on all different kinds of soil. And only on one soil does the seed actually sprout and grow and bear real fruit. There's a place in Luke 9 where a man comes up to Jesus and says, Jesus, I will follow you everywhere, anywhere. In other words, I am all out for you, Jesus. I am 100% committed. Wherever you want to go, I'll go. Whatever you tell me to do, I will do. And he's, he's, he's pumped and excited to become part of Jesus' grand mission and part of his team. And Jesus practically stops him in mid-sentence and he says, Foxes have holes and birds have nests, but the, the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. It's like he's saying, do you, do you even know what you're signing up for, buddy? Do you know what you're saying when you say, I'm flat out for you, Jesus. I'm 100% for you, Jesus. There's another place where uh, a bunch of uh, people come up to Jesus and they say, uh, didn't, we, didn't we do miracles in your name? And didn't we prophesy in your name? And didn't we do all these great things in your name, Jesus? And Jesus says, 
I never knew you. Depart from me. Jesus is extremely, extremely, extremely concerned about whether or not you and I are following him for the right reason. And in each of these instances, and, and what we see with this crowd as well, is that people actually, they often do think they're following Jesus for the right reasons, and not realizing they're, they're off base until Jesus reveals it to them, until he confronts them. They think that everything's fine. It, it's kind of like, like if you have a cancerous tumor growing out of your neck, you can see it. What, what would you rather, okay, let me put it this way. What would you rather have? Would you rather have a cancerous tumor growing out of your neck or a cancerous tumor uh, at your brain stem? The cancerous tumor, at least uh, growing out of your neck, you know it's there. You can see it's there. The one that in, in the brain stem, you don't even know necessarily if it's there. And it seems like Jesus is constantly concerned that, that we understand that, that non-Christianity, in a sense, like, Actual lack of faith, like, I don't believe this stuff, I, I don't believe Jesus is the Son of God, I'm not sold on any of this kind of stuff. That is actually, in a sense, less dangerous than false Christianity. Because people with a false faith are fooling themselves into thinking that everything is fine. A person who has no faith and is honest about the fact that they have no faith, they at least realize that they are not saved. But if you come to Jesus with a false faith, if you're coming to him for the wrong reasons, well, you might just have tricked yourself. And that's why Jesus is so concerned that we are coming to him for the right reasons. Okay, that's his concern. And so what's his critique? His critique uh, in this specific situation shows up in verse 27. Jesus says, do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him, God the Father, has set his seal. Now, it sounds like what Jesus is saying to them is that they've got their, their priorities wrong, right? They, they are fixated, in a sense, on material things and on physical things. And that they shouldn't be so fixated on material things and physical things. And, and that is a theme that Jesus brings up time and time again. And you and I probably uh, need to be critiqued and need to be admonished or need to be rebuked on our foolishness on, on, on taking physical things and making them more important or material possessions, making them more important than spiritual things. And, and, and even as I was reading this, I kind, of, I kind of thought, oh yeah, I know what Jesus is talking about. He's talked about this many times. But then it struck me, and this is what is absolutely astounding to me. Think about this. It's not that Jesus said you are too concerned about material things to these people. It's who he said it to. You and I live in the West. We are the richest most decadent culture in the history of civilization. You and I have no idea how unbelievably rich we are. And in fact, there's a lot of historians who say that because we are so ridiculously rich, it won't be long before our civilization falls apart. Because decadence seems to always precede decline. There, how's that something to chew on when you go home? Oh, great. Our civilization's falling apart because we're rich. But listen, 
Here is Jesus talking to people who live in what's called a subsistence society. A subsistence society is the kind of culture where people literally know what it means to ask God for their daily bread. This is a culture where they don't put away money for retirement and stuff like that. They put away money for today's meals. This is what these people were living in each and every day. They, they, they lived in a subsistence society. They, they needed their daily bread each and every day. And Jesus says to them, of all people, you worry too much about your temporal needs. You are so fixated on your physical material needs that you cannot see beyond them. And think about how extremely they could not see beyond them. This is how bad it was. Do you think, do you, okay, do you not think, let me put it that way, if you were there and you saw Jesus take two fish and five loaves of bread and just start breaking them up, and it just keeps coming, like at some point you're thinking, he's a magician. I get that. I was at a dinner on Friday night. There was a magician there. They can do cool sleight of hand stuff. But eventually, once you get to, he's fed now like 5,000 out of the 10,000 of us, and he just keeps ripping more bread off of that loaf, at some point, aren't you freaking out and saying, okay, this is not magic anymore. This is insanely different than anything I've ever seen before. This, who is this guy? See, Jesus says in the passage, he says, you're supposed to work for the food that I can give you because I'm the one God has put his seal on. Remember we read that? Well, Jesus is saying, God put a seal on me. When, you, when I made all that food for you, God put his seal on me. So here he is, Jesus is saying to them, look, I, have, I, I, I did this incredible miracle. I fed you from next to nothing. And what did you do? Did you fall down and worship me? Did you come to me and say, you must be the Messiah who has come to give, satisfy all our deepest needs? No, you thought you found the gravy train. You see the product. That's what you see. You see the product, but you don't see the provider. And the product matters more to you than the provider does. Now listen, things have not changed much in 2,000 years. If you promise to meet people's needs, and that, what I mean by needs is their felt needs, their material needs, their immediate needs, you can gather a crowd. Go ahead. If I, if I preached a gospel that said, Jesus is here to realize your ambitions. Jesus is here to help you have your best life today. Jesus is here to help you prosper so that your life will be free from hardship and free from suffering. All you need to do is claim that truth. Does that sound familiar to any of you? You guys ever heard of the prosperity gospel? Thousands and thousands and thousands of people flock to the prosperity gospel preachers every Sunday. In North America, thousands, and in, sadly, in other places in the world, by the millions. It's so attractive to them. God just wants me to be happy. I hear that all the time from people. God just wants me to be happy. And if, if, if we just promise them that God will make them happy, 
You can gather a crowd very, very easily. But that's not what Jesus offers. Jesus doesn't offer to make us happy. Nowhere in the Bible will you say that the God, God promises to make us happy. Did you know that? He doesn't promise that. He doesn't even offer that. You know what he offers? He offers himself to satisfy our deepest needs. Now, now, this is tough, okay? This is tough. This is tough to accept because you have real important needs right now. You've got issues in your life. You've got relationship problems. You've got money problems. You've got health problems. You've got problems. And it sounds to me like I'm saying those mean nothing. That's not what I'm saying. They had problems too. They needed food. What did Jesus do? He satisfied them. But this is the shocking reality, okay? Jesus is telling them and he's telling us our deepest, most ultimate need is not physical. Your body will die if it does not get food. That's true. But more seriously, your soul will die without Jesus. And when we prioritize the temporal over the eternal, you simply cannot come to Jesus rightly because you're not, that's not his priority. His priority is not my finances. His priority is not my physical health. As much as I may want that to be the case, it's not. And you know, I, I tremble to say this. But we need to understand this. Our obsession may not be with food. Maybe our obsession is with romance. Maybe our obsession is with our business or our career. Maybe our obsession is with our spouse. Maybe our obsession is with how we do in school. The, the list can go on and on and on. But if we become so fixated on the temporal, we lose our perspective. Let me give you one example of how easily and insidiously this can happen. I used the word insidious. I take that back because I don't want to. How easily and subtly and almost unconsciously this can happen. So I get, I, I get the, the privilege of talking to teachers sometimes. And a lot of the teachers I know, they work in Christian educational institutes, institutions. And one of the things that strikes them is, is that when parent-teacher interviews roll around, you know, that wonderful day where you get to go sit down with each teacher and find out stuff about your kid, like every parent would just rather, please don't tell me, but fine, we got to do this. No, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. It's an, important, it's an important part of the educational process. And so I've had a number of teachers tell me, and, and particularly Christian, Christian teachers in Christian schools tell me, that they're struck by how many Christian parents go to the parent-teacher interview, they sit down to talk with their teacher about their kid, and the, the parent's focus is almost entirely academically oriented. Which has always surprised me, because you get the, you get the, 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 the report card beforehand, so you can read that. You know your kid sucks at math, or, or is doing poorly at math. 
which is usually the, the real issue. But no questions about what's, what's my child like in the classroom? What's their character? Do they show any Christ-like character? Do they demonstrate faith? Are they, are they, are they, are they developing Christian virtues? And I'm not saying that Christian parents don't care about those things. What I'm saying is, is that our priorities can so very quickly turn to the temporal that we lose sight of the eternal, which is the real thing that really ultimately matters. But here's the thing. If we come to Jesus, not for him, but for his stuff, we will always, always, always be disappointed. And Jesus actually points that out in his command. This is the third point. So Jesus critiques the crowd. And he says to them, look, do not work. This is verse 27 again. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that, will give, uh, that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. And they respond to that critique with this question. Verse 28. Well, what must we do to be doing the works of God? So Jesus says, look, your focus is in the wrong place. You're worrying about temporal things. You should be worrying about eternal things. And they, their response is, well, what do we have to do to get the eternal reward? And it's ironic because they're completely missing the point. And you may want to be sympathetic to them. And you might want to say, well, oh, they didn't understand what Jesus was saying. I mean, Jesus said... Uh, you know, do the work that leads to eternal, that endures, work for the food that endures to eternal life. So they're thinking about work. Don't be sympathetic, okay? This is not an innocent mistake. This is the heart of rebellion. This is the heart of our sin, okay? This is the root of our sin, I should say. They are misunderstanding Jesus because they want to. Because you see, working to please God has always made sense to the human heart. The idea that you have to do something in order to earn his goodness, his kindness, his favor, has always made complete sense to the human heart. It fits their thinking about religion. Because religion says, look, if you live like this, then you will get what you deserve. So tell me what to do. And I'll live that way to get the reward at the end. How do I satisfy God? I'll do it. Just tell me what it is. And the reason is, is because what you're really focused on is the reward. You're not focused on him. You're not realizing that the reward is Jesus himself. This is why so many people can say, look, I don't need religion. You hear this. I'm a good person. I don't need religion. I'm a good person. They're using the same paradigm that is the way they're thinking. It's the same way as the crowd. And it's this. God rewards good. God punishes evil. I'm more than good than I am evil. So I'm fine. But there's no concern about a relationship with the divine. There's no concern about all that stuff I was saying at the beginning of the service. That we're here to meet with God and have an experience of God. And to, to deepen our fellowship and relationship with God. That doesn't matter. What matters is the reward. But you will never, ever, ever be satisfied that way. That's what Jesus is saying. You just want the rewards. You don't want him. In verse 35, this is near the end of the passage, he says this. Uh, well, the end of the passage we read. He says this, I am the bread of life. 
In other words, he's saying, you should be seeking me. You should be desiring me. You should be wanting me. But if you don't, you don't want Jesus. If you don't want Jesus, this is going to sound weird. You won't want Jesus. Yeah, profound, hey? Yeah, that's, that's the kind of thing you tweet. All you Twitters, tweet that puppy. If you don't want Jesus, you won't want Jesus. But let me explain what I mean. You will resent him. If your relationship with Jesus is not one of pursuing him, but pursuing his stuff, you will never actually want him. You will resent him. Have you ever resented Jesus? I can, with shame, I can admit I have resented Jesus. And you know when it happens? When my life isn't going the way I expected, when things aren't happening the way I think that they should happen, when, when things are difficult and I face trials that pop up that I didn't think should happen, then then I start to resent Jesus. I come to Jesus and I say, wait a minute, what's wrong with you? I'm trying hard here. I'm working hard for you. I'm doing, I'm doing your work for crying out loud. I'm a pastor. I'm a church planter. I've given my life to you and this is how you repay me? Resenting my Savior because I'm not focusing on him. I'm focusing on his stuff. You know, Charles Spurgeon tells a great story as an illustration of this. It's the story of the carrot and the horse. And this is what he says. He says, there was a poor man who had a little garden. And he grew in that garden one day the most wonderful carrot he ever grew. So he took the carrot to the king. And he told the king that this was the most beautiful carrot he had ever grown, and he will never grow one like it ever. And because the king is such a wonderful king, a glorious king, he wanted to give this prized carrot to the king. The king was wise, and he discerned the genuine heart of the farmer and said to him that he owned five acres next to the farm and wanted to give it to the poor man. The farmer was very grateful. Now, there was a nobleman listening to this exchange, and he thought, wow, five acres for a lousy carrot. He raised horses. He took his best horse to the king and said basically the same thing as the farmer. The king discerned his heart and said, thank you. He took the horse and he left. The nobleman was dumbfounded. The king turned around and said, let me explain to you. That farmer, he gave me a carrot, but you gave yourself a horse. And this is the difference that Jesus is constantly pushing us to wrestle with. Are you coming to me for me or for my stuff? And I know that I've been in this situation and Jesus rebukes me with the same words that he rebuked the crowd. In verse 29, he says, this is the work that you believe, this is the work of God that you believe in him who sent me. In other words, I never told you to do all that. You told yourself you had to do all that to come to me. You had to, you had to, 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 to 
do all this work to get my rewards. And Jesus is saying, if you want me to truly satisfy you, you have got to give up trying to manipulate me and just come to me and eat. Put yourself in my hands, put your life in my hands and be fed by me. Let me close with this. We need, we need a reminder. This is the reminder we need. Yes, each of every one of us in some way is a sufferer in need of comfort. No doubt about it. Just like this crowd. They, they were poor and they were hungry and they had needs. But we need to learn the same thing that, that they needed to learn and that's this. That you are first and foremost not a sufferer in need of comfort but you are a sinner in need of pardon. In verses 32 and 33, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Now, he's referring to a time in Israel's history when the people of God were taken through a desert. And the thing about a desert is, is that a desert cannot, on its own, satisfy, it cannot sustain life, okay? You die if you're on your own in the desert. And so God intervened because these people were dying in the desert. He intervened and he sent them bread from heaven. Well, Jesus is saying to us, he's saying, listen, we all live in a spiritual desert. Without him, we are dying. And we don't know it because we're running around chasing all these material things. But he's saying, I came to bring you life, to give you life by being the bread that you need. That's why he says in verse 35, I am the bread of life. When Jesus went to the cross, he died and he was broken for us and he took our sin upon him. And now he offers himself to us to feed our souls. And not to get too personal, to freak you out too much. But I can promise you that you need to hear this constantly. Because I walked in here this morning and at 5 to 11 I sat in that chair. And at 11 o'clock I got up and I went behind here and I went, where is everybody? Oh no. Come on Jesus, where are all the people? I'm trying to grow your church here. How come they're not coming to your church? And the next thing I know, I'm, I'm walking my way through all these songs in the worship service, thinking to myself the whole time, what do I got to do to change? How do we make this church grow better? Where are all these people? Come on, God, are you, are you, are you with me or are you against me? And then I got to come up and preach this sermon. Because it, well, I just broke something too. See, we can't afford this. We need more people to pay for stuff. Do you see how, how it's, it's always there at any moment ready to strike? And only if we are constantly feeding on Jesus. When we are constantly going back to him and realizing that he gave himself for us in that most remarkable way, dying on the cross for our sin. That we can be freed from all the anxiety that comes with thinking we have to work, do the works of God to find his blessing. Let's pray. Father,
<laughs> so weak are we, so weak are me. Uh, reveal to us afresh and anew that what you want from us is us. That what you want us to come to is you, not, not your not your stuff, but you. Yes, you do provide for our needs. You did for this crowd in their time of need. You gave them what they needed. And you do that for us too. Help us to trust that that is true as we continue to seek you, fellowship with you, experiencing your love and grace, your power, your glory. Father, work in us. We are a big time, a work in progress, no doubt. And thank you for being so patient with all of us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.